When you give your life to Jesus, you have the Father's pleasure immediately. I, I love that. Verse 12 going on, it says then, Immediately! Mark is telling us, come on, Rick, get rolling, you're running out of time. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Wild beasts there, it's the word therion. It's not the same word that's used of the beasts that were taken in for sacrifice, which were tame. The wild beast, Therion, spoke literally of predatory animals, dangerous animals, and Jesus is out there in the midst of them. So the angels are helping out, you know, shunning the hyenas and driving off the boars and the jackals and the foxes and the leopards, you know, and the wolves. Kenneth Woos says, The first Adam fell into sin in an environment that was perfect and harmonious. The last Adam, Jesus, maintained his sinlessness in an environment that was absolutely hostile. Jesus in the wilderness was not just being tempted by Satan. He had nothing to eat, he had nothing to drink, and he had wild animals to contend with. And all this is going on, and I read that and I thought, this is the pleasure of a father? And you I'm well pleased. Now get out of here. Out to the wilderness with you. Have fun. <laughs> How is this the pleasure of a father? And maybe you felt that way. When your life is going all wrong, when you, like Leslie, came off of a wonderful trip with her husband only to have to have an emergency surgery and then recovering from that falls on her stairs, as we learned this weekend, and breaks two ribs. And when I talked to Leslie on Saturday, she was in tears. She was like, I just, I'm under such attack here. And I go, I know. And we prayed. When I talked to her yesterday, she was so much happier. Hydrocodone will do that. <laughs> but there was a peace there. There was a peace there. And she said, you know what, this is just, it's just crazy. But I know God's, I just, I'm just, I just need to press into the Lord right now. I said, don't press in too much. It might hurt your ribs. But... Rest and peace. In Jesus' temptation, we see something here. Briefly referred to by Mark, we see the faithfulness of Jesus. We see God's faithfulness to His Son. We see the angels sent to minister to Him. We see Jesus faithfully standing up against all the temptation of Satan. In spite of what's going on. The testing was not proving Jesus to God... The testing was proving Jesus to us so that we would see the temptations of Christ and go, He is worthy to take all my sin. He can stand up to it. And if He can stand, He can help me to stand. He is perfect. We see Him and it's proof to us of His sinlessness. Gang, listen. Maybe you're in your own wilderness of temptation. Or maybe you question God's pleasure in you when life is going all wrong. Don't. Don't ever question the pleasure of your Father even when life seems to be a mess. Even when there seems to be predators attacking. The wilderness is not God's anger or wrath. The wilderness is God's proving ground and He is proving you in your strength. He is proving your faithfulness. It's not testing to make you fall. It is testing to make you and to make me faithful. And so He takes us there because He knows that faithfulness. He knows that testing will strengthen our faith. And turn us back to Him. And He knows exactly how much we can take. And not a bit more. And sometimes not a bit less. 
He does what needs to be done to increase our faithfulness. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now I continue to hear a lot of believers bemoan the attacks of the enemy. I hear it all the time. I'm under attack, I'm under attack, I'm under attack. Okay, I I get that, and perhaps you are. But rather than focusing on the enemy and Satan's provocations, Jesus didn't focus on that. What did Jesus do? He focused on the Word of God. He focused on the Lord. He was faithful to God, not fearful of the enemy. So even if you are under assault or attack by the enemy in your life, even if that's you have a pretty good sense, this is a satanic thing going on here, messing with me, don't get all scatterbrained and fearful. No, it's your opportunity to just be faithful to the Lord and know He is going to come through. He always does. Note that it was the Holy Spirit who impelled Jesus into the wilderness. Satan didn't lure him out there. The Spirit drove him. That word impelled means drove. Wait a minute. The Spirit doesn't drive, does He? He will if I'll give Him the keys and get out of the seat. I want the Spirit to drive. Even if that means driving me into places I don't want to go. Because He always knows exactly where He's going. You know, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is filled with the Spirit. Right? Let the Spirit drive. Verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God and saying, and here it is, the proclamation, the time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And that's the sum total declaration of Jesus' ministry right there. Verse 15. I would say memorize that. Know that verse. This is what Jesus came to do. First He says, the time is fulfilled. The time here is not... The common usage of the Greek word time, chronos, which doesn't mean crown. It means time. It's not chronos that's used here. It's kairos. Why is that? Kairos speaks of the end of one epoch and the beginning of the next. Kairos speaks of an event. The time has been fulfilled. What time? That time which needed to be fulfilled, that's fulfilled, and now we're about to head into a new time. Jesus is saying it's a changing of dispensations here. The law is being fulfilled in me. Jesus speaking. He says in another place, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So that era is over. The time is fulfilled. The dispensation changing now from law to grace. And that's the age that we're at, the tail end of the age of grace. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Greek word at hand there, is at hand, is egizo. And it means coming near. The kingdom of God is coming near. Now, I need to tell you this, and I know you'll all get this because you're Greek scholars, as am I. It's in the perfect active indicative verb form. Oh, yeah. Whoa. I know. Did you get that? Isn't that amazing? The perfect active indicative verb form. Okay, and you need to get this. The dailies probably uh, The dailies may. <laughs> I know Woost understands this because this is where I got it. Egizo, the kingdom of God is egizo. It is coming near. Here's what it means. The perfect verb form means it's in process. Okay? In other words, Jesus says, it's begun. 
It's happening. Ball's rolling. Active, the active verb form, means the subject is making it happen. The kingdom of God is in process, is coming, is happening. God is the one making this happen. And indicative means it is absolutely certain. That's amazing to me. The kingdom of God is coming near, God is making it happen, and it is absolutely certain. That's what he's saying when he says the kingdom is at hand. See, this is why the Holy Spirit chose to have the New Testament mostly given to us in Greek. Because it is so explanatory. It is so picturesque. It is so illustrative of everything that the Lord wants us to understand in a single word. So we're going to see a lot of Greek going by as we study. By the way, that's how we're supposed to live our lives, in the perfect active indicative verb form. In other words, we need to understand, as we live, right here, right now, we are in the process of the divinely ordained kingdom. God is doing it, His Spirit working through us, and it is an absolute certainty. And so, whatever the outcome in November, the kingdom is underway. It's underway, gang. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now understand, he doesn't say repent of sin and believe in the gospel. Doesn't mean we shouldn't repent from sin, but he's not talking about turning from something. He's talking about turning to something. And this is, this is huge. Repent and believe. Repent to God. The word there is metanoio or metanoieo. Metanoieo. Yeah, metanoieo. In the Greek. Metanoieo means change your mind. Just change your mind. Your mind is set in this direction. And Jesus says, repent. Oh, i got to wallow in sin. No, it means turn around and go the other way. Change your mind and put it on God instead of your sin. And by the way, if we would do that, sin would be a lot easier to get loose from, to be released from. This is an absolute key. It is not determination to live a better life in Jesus that makes us less sinful people. Every time you try and turn from your sin, your sin is going to dog you. But if you turn to the Lord, that's a different thing altogether. You turn, you repent to His Spirit, not from your sin. You're not thinking about your sin. You let it go, man, and you look to Jesus. I repent. I look at you, I turn to you. Why is that so? Because the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul said in Romans 17, 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in me. So why would I think I could overcome my sin? There's nothing good here. There's a whole lot of good there. So I look to the Spirit. I repent to Jesus. And all that stuff, He'll, he'll extricate me from it. He will loose me from it. What did, what did the Hebrew writer say? Hebrews 12? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Yeah. Let us get unentangled from the sin. Let's run from the sin that so easily entangles us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. That's how you overcome sin. You look to Him. You focus on Him. The more you focus on your sin, even in trying to get loose from it, the more you know it's just there. Always there. Always there. Look to Jesus. He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the proclamation. What proclamation? Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. 
And the reason that people could then and can repent now is because the time of grace was at hand. Verse 16, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, Mark says, they left their nets and followed him. Boom, off they go. I love that. Oh, that we would respond to Jesus that quickly. Hey, follow me. Okay, good. Follow me. Uh, just a minute. I, I gotta, can I put that on my calendar? <laughs> we're in staff meeting today and we're trying to calendar things and I've got my iPhone and I'm just going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And everybody's like writing it down and they're done in two minutes and I've got technology and it takes me like ten. <laughs> Jesus says, follow me. Let's go. The king's business requires haste. Let's go. Follow me, he says. And Simon and Andrew, off they go. Follow me, he says, and you're going to reel in men. How do you reel in men? Follow me. What is Jesus' program of evangelism? Did he use evangelism explosion? Did Jesus use some well-developed concept? Program? Did he say, look, Simon and Andrew, I need you guys to come over to the house because he's got a video series, six parts, that's going to show you how to do what I need you to do. Jesus' plan of evangelism, get this, is follow me. That's his plan. And you realize that if you follow Jesus, you will become a fisher of men. People will get hooked. They, they're going to see you in Jesus. They're going to see Jesus in you. They're going to see you walking and go, that is something worth having. That, why are they different? Why does she have so much peace? Why is he so strong? Why is there joy even in this mess of, that they're going through? Because you're following Jesus. That is the best tool of evangelism that is out there. You can't get a better tool. Don't get into debates. Be debate. Get it? Fishers of men be. Be the bait. Follow him. And they did. Verse 18. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called to them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. This is an interesting contrast. you got Simon and Andrew, two brothers, and they're out there fishing. They're just doing their own thing, small business. Okay. Then you have James and John and, and Papa Zebedee and the hired servants. they got a whole little corporation going on over here, a little bigger deal. And in both situations, you know, self-run business and larger corporation... Jesus calls, and they go. Immediately, they go. Why did He choose them? Why did He choose James and John, for example, or or Simon and Andrew? Some say Jesus chose James and John because James and John were His cousins. Did you know they were? James and John were Jesus' first cousins. How do you know? John 19.25 tells us that Salome was Jesus' mother. Or, or Jesus' mother's sister. Got it, okay. Salome was the sister of Jesus' mother. Mary, his mother, and Mary had a sister named Salome. Okay, so that's John 19.25. Matthew 27.56 tells us that Salome was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. 
making James and John Salome's sons and Jesus' first cousins. So he knew them. They knew him. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, right? And he didn't recognize that Jesus was the Messiah until he baptized him. They were cousins. And he didn't even know until the Holy Spirit came on Jesus. And then John said, then I recognized him. Then I saw Messiah in him. So I don't, I don't think that Jesus chose James and John because they were cousins. I don't think it was nepotism. <laughs> notice, notice their callings. Verse 16, Peter and Andrew, Andrew were casting nets. They're casting nets. They're in the process of fishing, and Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? Peter would preach the first sermon of the church, Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 people got caught. He cast the net of the gospel and reeled in 3,000 on day one of the church. Peter did that. Simon. Andrew. When we see Andrew, he, he grabs Nathaniel and he says, you got to see this Jesus. He's the one. Andrew's out evangelizing even before Jesus goes to the cross. So Simon and Andrew, there was something about these two men. And Peter says, they're fishermen. So I'm going to make them fishers of men. What about James and John? Now this may be a stretch, but go with me on it. James and John were mending nets. What do we see James and John doing later in their lives? Mending. We see them mending relationships. We see them mending people. Uh, I'd say that we see them networking, but that might be too far to go. Net. We see James in the 15th chapter of Acts taking the lead to settle a dispute in the first century church. Mending. We see the apostle John at the end of his life. You know what the phrase that John was most famous for at the end of his life as an old man? Tradition coming all the way down tells us this phrase, little children love one another. John, what should we do about the church in the current day? We know you're an old man, you're, you're wise, you walk with Jesus. What should we do in the church today? Little children love one another. These two, James and John, were menders of relationship. They didn't start out that way. I mean, they were mending nets, but, but relationally, they were Boanerges. That was a nickname Jesus gave them, Sons of Thunder. You know why they got that nickname? Because they wanted to call down fire on a city that wouldn't believe in Jesus. Let's just burn them to a crisp, Lord! Yahoo! Gospel on! Sons of Thunder, you're going to be menders. I point that out because, gang, that's what Jesus does. He takes our lives. We come to Him and people think, I've got to make all these sweeping changes. I've now got to become this as a Christian or that as a, as a follower of Jesus. No, you need to be who you are in Jesus. Because He takes who you are and He translates that into who He created you to be. And He uses some of what, before we came to Jesus, stuff that we just thought was common and mundane, average, that's just what I do, And he takes those quirks and traits and characteristics and abilities and he glorifies them by his Spirit. And suddenly you're doing the same thing you did before, but now you're doing it for the glory of God. Now it is producing results for the kingdom. Whereas before it was just spinning your wheels. Jesus does that. Verse 21, they followed, they they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Capernaum, that town right by the sea. The remains, the ruins of Capernaum are there today. You can see them. It's an amazing place. It's one of my favorite places, Spencer, on the Israel tour. It's Capernaum. Verse 23, so they 
Is that no, 21, so they immediately go into the synagogue there. The synagogue there is still there. The ruins of it. And they enter the synagogue, and he began to teach. Verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority. And I love this. And not as the scribes. <laughs> this guy was teaching with authority. I can listen to this guy. But our scribes don't teach that way. What was the difference? The scribes were quoters. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders were quoters. They would go around and they'd say, Rabbi Hillel saith. Or they'd say, Rabbi Shammai says. And they quoted all the great rabbis. But they never spoke their own thought. Jesus comes along and He says, you've heard it said blah, 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 but I say to you, this is the way it is. I say to you. This guy is speaking as though he has the right to tell us what the truth is. Well, of course he does, because he is the way, the truth, and the life, John tells us. Jesus comes along completely different. Nobody taught like Him. Verse 23, just then, just then actually is the same word, immediately. Immediately there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, Be quiet, come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. I just wonder, some of our elders, what would you guys do if that happened on a Sunday? They were all amazed. Verse 27. So that they debated among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. And immediately, the news about Him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of the Galilee. Are you picking up the intensity of Mark's writing? Once we get out of the intro, all of a sudden it's just boom, 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 boom. Things are happening one thing after another. This non-stop action The king's business requires haste. And off we go and we're running. Man, this you know, this gospel reads like Rimsky-Korsakov's famous concerto, Flight of the Bumblebee. You know? It takes off. And here we go. Notice though, when Jesus cast out the demon, what happened? What did it do to the man? It threw him immediately into convulsions. Just another point here about when your life starts to get shaky or messed up or you feel like you are under attack or you get rattled. Do you immediately assume God is absent and cry out, Where are you? Or do you recognize perhaps that God has already begun the process of healing and the enemy's just trying to fight back? This man is thrown to the ground in convulsions, but Jesus already, already is driving the demon out. The process of healing is already underway. Do you realize sometimes when we are sick, when some disease strikes, before we've even asked, the process of healing is already underway? Wasn't it Isaiah who prophesied the Lord saying, even before you call, I will answer you? I'm already at work here. And I think if we could learn this, if I could learn this as a believer in Jesus, He is already moving. He has already, he's already cast the demon out. Satan's just ticked off. But Jesus has got this. Sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. But understand, Jesus may very well be right in the midst of the process of releasing you. 
whatever happens, remember this, Jesus knows how to set the captive free. Isaiah 61, verse 1. He sets the captive free. Verse 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. It's about a oh one-minute walk down from the synagogue to where they believe Peter's house was there right by the Sea of Galilee. Just walk right down there. They go into the house and Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. Feels terrible. Go in there with James and John, Simon and Andrew. And Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, which means Simon was married. We know nothing about his wife. Never hear anything else. We just know he was married. Okay. Thought I'd point that out. (laughs) Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. I love that. Oh wow, she's sick? Tell Jesus. Oh, that we would do that a little more often. You're hurting? Tell Jesus. You're aching? Tell Jesus. You got a problem? Tell Jesus. So they go right to Jesus and he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand and the fever left her and she... Literally, it says, waited on them. She served them. So that's what happens when the servant of the Lord, Jesus, touches your life. You become a servant of the Lord. And she served them. She gets busy serving and taking care of things. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to Him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And we're told the whole city gathered at the door. And He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who He was. He wasn't letting them speak. You're... (laughs) I know who you are. You're the... You know, Jesus just... Silence. Shut up. Cast them out and off they go. And they cannot say He's the Son of God. And why is this? Well, a couple of reasons. One, Jesus knew the timing of God and it was not God's time for people to really recognize that He was Messiah. Not yet. The demons were trying to, you know, get the word out ahead of time. No, it's not time. But let me tell you something else about Jesus that amazes me. Jesus who said so often, my time has not yet come. Listen, knowing your place in God's timing tends to make you more humble. And Jesus was humble. He humbled Himself under the timing of God. That is one of the most important Jesus-like qualities we can have. God's time. It's not my time. It's His. It's His timing. And when I understand His timing and I put myself under that, I'm humble. And Jesus was incredibly humble. He didn't want His horn tooted. He didn't want people to know who He was. He didn't want a big fanfare. He didn't want the paparazzi all around Capernaum descending on Peter's house. Be quiet. It's not time. Imagine the pressure that was on Jesus. The constant pressure on Jesus to reveal who He was. That was one of the temptations of Satan. Take Jesus up onto the pinnacle of the temple and say, you know what? If you throw yourself off the top, do something big. Because if the people see that, that you're not going to stumble on, you're not going to hurt your foot on a stone, that God will protect you, He'll send His angels to protect you. Your scriptures say that, Satan misquotes, and he says, just do it, do something big. People will see you're the Messiah, and they'll follow you. And you can sidestep the cross. And Jesus says, not going to happen. You misquote the scriptures. Jesus knew the time of God. And he walked humbly within that timing. Not the provocation of Satan, but the perfect peace of God. 
Although he existed in the form of God, Paul tells us, Philippians 2.6, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Now hang in there. We're doing really good. And there's just, with so much immediacy, it's taking us longer than I planned. Obviously, word is now spreading out. Jesus' fame is growing. And look what he does. Verse 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Note this, it's the only time in the four Gospels that we're told Jesus prayed in the morning. We have one instance in Luke where we're told He prayed all night long and that was before choosing the apostles. That's it. Yet people are always saying Jesus was always up early praying every day. Well, they're right. He was. I'll tell you why. But it says he was praying there in a secluded place, went off on his own. Simon and his companions searched for him. Why are they searching for him? Because everyone wants to know where he is. They wake up. Crowds are already gathering outside Peter's house. Oh, we got to get Jesus. Yeah, it's time. You know, it's American Idol time. Come on, let's get the lights up. Let's get the show going. Where's Jesus? I don't know. Go find him. Okay, we'll be right back. You stay here. And off they go to get Jesus. And they come up to him. They found him and they said to him, verse 37, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let's go somewhere else. Would you say that? Can you imagine a revival starts on a Sunday morning here in the bridge? All day long. People are getting saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's just an amazing thing going on. People are coming from all over the place. And Monday morning, people go, okay, get Get Les up here. Get Rick. Where are they? I don't know. We'll go get them. And you find us, and we go, oh, a revival's happening? Cool. We're going to Cedro. <laughs> Why is there a revival out there? No, we just, there are other people we need to. I mean, I just, I don't think like this. I think if something big is happening, that's where you want to be. Go where the, the action is, right? Make haste. Then Jesus departs. He goes away. And then when they do find him, he says, I'm not going back to Capernaum today. He says, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Now listen, the king's business requires haste, but the king's servant knows how to be most effective. And here's what just happened. Simon and the boys go looking for Jesus because it was game on, you know. The area is exploding with eager fans. And Jesus goes out to the unwalled villages and tiny hamlets. That word towns, we've mentioned before, it literally is komopolis in the Greek and it means podunk places. It does. Podunk. Where do you live? Eh, Podunkville. These are the little towns around the Galilee that didn't even have walls. They were too small. They were just, you know, settlements. And Jesus said, that's where I need to go. That I may preach there also, for that is what I came for, and I always thought eternally. That's what I came for. That's why I descended from the heaven onto this puny planet. I came to save all mankind. That is what I came for. And that's not what he said. He says, literally, that is why I came forth. Listen, don't think eternally. Think immediately. That's why he came forth from his place of prayer that morning, is what he's talking about. Huh? Here's the thing. 
Jesus came forth from praying. He had been with the Father, so He knew the Father's agenda for that day. And it was not to go back to Capernaum. God's agenda for that day was to go on to other places. Jesus got in touch with God's agenda at the start of the day, and therefore, He said, well, that's why I came forth from praying. That's why you found me, boys, (laughs) because I may be reading into it, but I think Jesus could have stayed unfound if He wanted to. He just wanted some time off. He could have done it. No. He said, I, I came out you know, from my place of prayer because I have a job to do today. And that job is not in Capernaum. It's elsewhere. Let's go elsewhere. He started with prayer. He got God's agenda. And he went on with his day. You get what I'm saying to you? So often I say, I have my quiet time, my devotional time. It's at night. Right before I go to bed, I drift off to sleep with the Lord every night. Okay, well, you have deprived yourself of God's agenda for that day. If we start, Lord, what do you have for me today? If we still ourselves before the day gets rolling, that's where we discern how to make haste with the king's business. When am I supposed to be urgent and rushing and moving forward and busy with the, with the gospel? God will tell you. But the best thing we can do to get there, to get direction for the day, is rest and waiting on the Lord and listening in to what God has to say. Jesus was in prayer every morning. How do we know that? Isaiah told us. Isaiah 50, verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. That's the third servant song that is Jesus saying those words. God wakes me every morning. I start with Him. Best way. That's the perfect pattern for Christian living. Jesus' pattern. The King's business requires haste. The King's servants require the Father's agenda. So you begin with that. Jesus said in John 17.4, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. How do you accomplish that? Well, John 5.19, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. I will do what I see the Father doing. And if you want to accomplish great things for the Kingdom of God, do what the Father is doing. How do I know what the Father is doing? Start the day with Him. Lord, what's your agenda for today? Verse 40. You guys are doing great. Rick, we have no choice. Well, okay. (laughs) And a leper came to Jesus. By the way, this is part of the agenda for that day. A leper came to Jesus beseeching Him and falling on His knees before Him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That leper was not in Capernaum. Jesus had gone back to Capernaum, which would have been human nature. This leper would not have found him that day. This is one of the most touching stories in the entire Gospel narrative right here. If you are willing, he says, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion. The Greek word there is splachna, and it means guts. Moved in his gut. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him touched the unclean leper and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Immediately. 
leprosy, that disfiguring, destroying, debilitating disease. Perhaps worse than all of that, it was the ostracizing disease. You get leprosy, you're out. You go live with the other lepers, but you and, and you can't even really even have contact with them. All human contact is over. Why did Jesus touch him? Probably because he hadn't been touched in a long, long time. And before even the healing process, Jesus knew this man's heart needs touching. Oh, I am willing. Boom. Be clean. Such is the compassion of Jesus. It's that disease that eats a person away and Jesus touches him. Notice the leper didn't say, Look away, Jesus, while I scrape these sores and lance these boils. Look away. Let me put on a clean, unsoiled shirt at least. It's not what the leper said. He said, If you are willing, you can make me clean. It's faith. You can do this. What was the most common word for a leper? Unclean. That was a requirement. If you had leprosy and you saw someone walking near you who didn't have leprosy, you had to call out, Unclean! Unclean! And usually you were stoned for saying it. But this leper knew. He knew. How did he know? Faith. Remember, faith is that certainty. It is absolutely knowing. When you have faith, you know that you know that you know. It's not a blind faith. He didn't guess that Jesus would heal him. He knew that Jesus would heal him. I, I, I know that if you're willing, you can make me clean. Your will, he's saying. And Jesus is so touched by this. Understand this, gang. You will never make yourself clean before God. You will never do it. But come to Jesus in faith, and what does He do? He touches you. And there's no amount of exclusion from humanity and there's no amount of disease or sin in your life that can keep Jesus from touching you with compassion and grace. It's what He does. There's something else you have to know. And see it in what Jesus says. I am willing to be cleansed. See it? The leper says, If it be your will. And Jesus says, It is my will. It is my will. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying it is God's will to heal you. You don't have to ask. Lord, if it be Thy will, please heal me. Now, I may sound contradictory because I have said, make sure you ask for things in God's will. Make sure you want to be aligned with His will. But we can know this for certain. It is the will of God to heal you. He wants to do it. I am willing. Be clean. And so the leper was immediately cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. He was cleansed. And he sternly warned him. Jesus warned the leper and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. (laughs) This has always amazed me. The entire Levitical law regarding the offering of a cleansed leper, which is in Leviticus 14, you can read it. It's an amazing law. God says, when a leper has been cleansed of his leprosy, he is to take this particular offering to the priests in the temple. It's not, how do you get clean from leprosy? It's, when you are miraculously cleaned of your leprosy, here's the offering that you have to take. You know, it was not used once. 
What about Naaman the Syrian? He was a Gentile. He wasn't under Jewish law. There was never a leper who ever had to follow through with Leviticus 14. It was a useless law. I can see Moses writing it out. Really? He said it. We'll put it in there. You know, He's not going to take it out of the platform because he, he said it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it sat on the books useless for 1,500 years. Leviticus 14. Oh, it's irrelevant. It's not culturally relevant anymore. It was for then. It's not for now. It has no place in the Scripture. Let's just ignore it. People do that with Scripture today. It was not used. But check it out. This little leper comes up to Jesus, gets healed, and uses the law. Jesus says to him, I want you now to go to the priest, show yourself, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. Why? As a testimony to them. What does that mean? It means, gang, that sometimes your healing is not for you. Sometimes God heals you as a testimony for someone else. In fact, I would say often the healing of God is not for you. Because frankly, if I want the real healing of God, just take me home. You know, strike me dead now and take me. That's the best healing I can imagine. If it's for me, if I'm being selfish. But if He heals you and restores your life, it is as a testimony to them. In this case, the priests. And I love this. After this leper, think about the ministry of Jesus. Dozens of used-to-be lepers are now heading to the temple to give this offering. I was a leper, and I brought my offering. Can you imagine the priests dealing with this stuff? Hey, Joshua, we got another used-to-be leper! He's going to bring his offering now. Well, that's the fourth one today. I mean, they just after this leper, the floodgates open and dozens of lepers healed by Jesus are showing up at the temple to offer their offering. That's great. Why? Because God loved those priests. He loved His Jewish people. You go as a testimony to them. God put it on the books 1,500 years earlier so when these lepers would be cleansed 1,500 years later, His own people would see this and there would be a testimony. All that I said was happening and was coming in this Messiah. It's being fulfilled right here before your eyes. Look at this. Pay attention. The lepers are being healed. Wow. And verse 45, But He went out, this leper, and began to proclaim it freely and spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to Him from everywhere. So in other words, Jesus says, don't share the Gospel and everybody hears about it. Jesus tells us, share the Gospel! And how many people are showing up? Maybe Jesus should do what Island County did when we first started the bridge and just say, don't tell anybody you're there. In fact, I'm going to tell you that tonight. When you leave here, when you go through the rest of this week, don't talk about Jesus. Our secret. (laughs) A little reverse psychology for you. How far have we just come in one chapter? And I'm not talking about the minutes in the study. How far have we come? Look at what has happened. One chapter of Mark. The king's business requires haste. Jesus is on the move. 
and not just in Mark. Gang, this is just the beginning. Father, bless Your Word to our hearts tonight. We thank You for this great book. We thank You so much for Jesus Christ. We thank You for the example, Jesus, that You set, the life that You lived. We thank You for the the passion and the compassion You had for people. And we thank You for how You have shown, for those of us believers, this amazing example of how to live our lives as proclaimers of the Gospel. And I pray, Father, I'm just asking, Lord, over the next... 16 or so weeks, should we be here that long? Should you tarry? I'm asking, Lord, that we would be proclaimers of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Praise the Lord.